Welcome to the Foxy Podcast, a bi-monthly show brought to you by Freeform Freakout. The show is produced at KMSU Studios in Mankato, Minnesota. And here on the Foxy Podcast, we try to dig deeper into underground and experimental sounds of the past and present. And welcome to episode number 190 of the Foxy Podcast show. Hope you're all doing well out there, wherever you're listening from. On this installment of the podcast be exploring the multifaceted musical output of Will Guthrie, an Australian drummer, percussionist, and electroacoustic sound artist that now resides in France. Guthrie cut his teeth as a young drummer in the Australian jazz and improv scene in the late 90s, and has since gone on to record upwards of 50 albums, both as a soloist and in collaboration with such notable artists as Oren Ambarchi, Mark Fell, and Jerome Nottinger to name a few. This year alone has seen the release of three new standout albums from Guthrie, part two of his acclaimed People Pleaser release, his collaborative release called Real Real World with fellow Australian experimental artist James Rushford, and his other duo release Electric Rag with longtime collaborator Jean-Luc Gionnet. This past week, I interviewed Will via video chat and was able to find out more about his musical background in Australia, his latest recordings, his work with Ensemble Nishna, his upcoming tour plans, and other topics related to his creative work. Throughout the show, you'll get a chance to hear this interview over a few different segments. And between those, you'll also get a chance to hear various selections from Will's solo and collaborative recordings, focusing pretty heavily on his more recent releases. Before we get into the first interview segment, though, thought I'd start things off by playing a track from his 2012 solo album, Sticks, Stones, and Breaking Bones. This is the opening piece off that one called Sticks. Thank you. 
you know, I've seen that you described uh, in previous interviews how you became interested in, in music uh, at a pretty early age. And it was through, I believe it was, you had mentioned like your older brother's classic rock, you know, bands like Zeppelin, Who, The Kiss. I think, you know, like a lot of bands that uh, young people get into. and But also, you know, fairly early on, as I was kind of, you know, reading between the lines there is that you you were playing in jazz groups uh, at a pretty early age and eventually even improvised groups. So I'm wondering if you could kind of you know, map out sort of the progression that went into you as a young kid, maybe wanting to be Keith Moon and John Bonham to all of a sudden, you know, playing jazz uh, in, uh, you know, that's well outside the scope of rock music. Yeah. Um well, yeah, as you said, my brother, you know, he kind of got me. His three favorite bands were like The Who, Led Zeppelin, and um, Pink Floyd. So that was the stuff. He's eight years older than me, so he was listening to all of that. But my sister was also into hip-hop, mm-hmm. um, early hip-hop. So, uh, you know, obviously those two kind of influenced a lot the stuff that I was listening to. And, um, you know, when I first started playing around 12 or 13, I was playing along with tapes, like kind of hard rock tapes in the garage. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's how, how all that started. And uh, something kind of, funnily enough, I we had this family friend called Danny Fisher, who's a really great jazz drummer in Melbourne. And um, I used to hang out with him when I was really young and we lost contact and, Anyway, I bumped into him at, at the, the train station when we were like 13 and he was reading like Modern Drummer <laughs> and uh, we started chatting and anyway, we kind of worked out who each other, who, who, who we were and anyway, his dad was a total jazz buff and I uh, had the most insane collection of kind of modern, modern jazz, you know, from sort of bebop onwards mm-hmm. and uh, through hanging out with Danny that kind of opened my ears up to, you know, a bunch of different stuff. And I, I just remember that thing of discovering kind of instrumental music and and being like, and thinking, you know, oh, like finally there's no singer kind of like <laughs> dump, dumbing it all down, you know. Right, right. And the, the instrumentalists could sort of just do their thing. And that was that was something that really hit me hard. And from then on in, it was sort of this, yeah, love affair with, with jazz. Yeah, yeah. So did you move from drumming along to like uh tapes of rock to doing that the same with like jazz like like trying to emulate some of those jazz players yeah kind of i mean i used to sort of borrow records from danny and and his dad and uh and also my drum teacher i started getting drum lessons and he was into he was getting me into fusion you know Mm -hmm. that that was sort of this great stepping stone to more you know more kind of um earlier forms of jazz Right. So um, I was really into Weather Report and my heavy Schnur Orchestra and all that stuff. And uh, yeah, I mean, you start trying to play along with that stuff, and it's 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 pretty interesting, you know. It's, yeah. you, you start away dealing with odd time signatures, and you know, sort of rhythmically way more complex than than Motley Crue's "Girls, Girls, Girls." You know, <laughs> so that was right. Did you was, have did... a step in the right direction? <laughs> you know. You know, I mentioned like Keith Moon and John Bonham, you know, these like heavy hitters. I mean, was there, yeah. as you moved away from that, were there certain drummers that you really looked to that as you were branching out, especially like jazz drummers that was there like an Elvin Jones or some figure like that that you were looking yeah. to as inspiration? 
I mean, to be honest, I saw the link between Elvin and and John Bottom straight away, you know, mm-hmm. and then and then sort of later on, of course, you read about it and everyone, you know, it was a known kind of thing. But I remember listening to sort of John Bottom's like triplet sort of um, drum fills and stuff, and then hearing Elvin not too much longer after and being like, ah, okay, that's that's where that comes from, you mm-hmm. know. Yeah, yeah, and also Elvin. You know, Elvin and Tony Williams, though they, they, they were the guys, you know, from the sort of 60s. That, I mean, it was so full on the way they played it. For me, it's always been way more rock, way more heavy than, you know, a lot of rock music. It's mm-hmm. it's kind of completely full on, really, really loud. I saw Elvin play. I I met Tony Williams as well. And, I you know, and he sort of said, drums are meant to be loud. It's a loud instrument. you got to hit them hard, you know. Right, right. <laughs> so uh, that was for me. Jazz wasn't sort of this thing so far from rock. It was sort of like playing more complex stuff, but with the with the energy of rock music. Right, right. Well, could you explain then how that progression went along, and then eventually you and a crew of people formed this ongoing improv series in Melbourne. Um, I think it was initially called like the Improvised Tuesdays, which it seems like every yeah. major city has a venue that has something along those lines. But then, yeah. but then you you eventually renamed it the Make It Up Club, which has been, I mean, that went on for a long, long time, well beyond. It's still after, going. Okay, I was gonna say even after you Amazing, left, it's still going. Yeah, yeah, it's one of the longest, probably one of the longest running, you know, weekly improvised music series anywhere. I'd imagine. I mean, it's been going for. We started that in ninety seven i think 96 or 97 and uh you know that's sort of like an age-old story of just we i was studying jazz and improvised music at the victorian college of the arts it's kind of a, a university in melbourne that at the time had a really great syllabus for for people interested in jazz but pushing to kind of find maybe a bit more of an australian identity whatever that is through in improvised music but not kind of just following the straight ahead jazz kind of college um, uh, model, which which was sort of happening in the States at the time and uh, still is probably. And uh, so, you know, we were getting more and more interested in free jazz and and different, you know, forms of improvised music. And, and then uh, I guess we just did what people do all over the world. You know, there was nowhere to play that stuff. And there was nowhere that you could kind of call or say, can we get a gig? So it was, it was sort of up to us just to get it happening ourselves. Mm-hmm. And um, it was, you know, it was something that, that's that been really important for me ever since, you know, that thing of organizing gigs, being a musician, but not just sort of being like this consuming musician where you just, you know, you just, people book you and you come and you play and you do your thing and you get the money and then you leave or whatever. The whole thing of kind of organizing gigs for other, for yourself and other people, um, you know, you're straight away in much more of a, a, a community social type activity, which of course creates links and creates, you know, relationships with people from in other towns and maybe inspires other people to do the same thing in other places. And so you're kind of building on something way more important than just you rocking up, doing your thing and then leaving. Right, right. And, uh, you know, and the AACM and, you know, collectives like that were obviously very much an influence on that that sort of way of doing things. Yeah. Well, well you know, we'll, we'll talk about some of your collaborations here coming up in maybe the next segment, but I was curious if some of these people that you linked up with were some of your current collaborators from Australia, thinking of people like Oren, 
Anthony uh, Pateras, Mark Fell, were some of those people involved or kind of in and out of that uh, series at all at the time? Um, I mean, we all kind of, Oren's older than me and he was from Sydney and he had a, he ran a festival with a, an amazing drummer called Robbie Evanayam and uh, called What Is Music and that introduced a lot of us to a lot of different music on a more international level. I mean, it was really hard to get, it still is, to get foreign artists over to Australia. So they, they brought out a lot of Japanese noise artists and um, a lot of, you know, European kind of farmers, Manuel and Pita and Fenez and all these types of people came as well. So they were doing that thing. Anthony was a little bit younger than me. I met him probably a little bit later and he was more from a kind of contemporary classical background. Um, whereas I was more from a sort of jazz jazz background, and Mark's actually English. He's not from Australia. Oh yeah, for some reason. I thought yeah, yeah, I met him a lot uh, yeah. way later. But it was definitely a place where people met, and yeah, absolutely. I mean, the main guy is a guitarist called Ren Walters, mm-hmm. who um, who I started playing with. Then he was one of the teachers at the VCA, and we started Improvised Tuesdays together. And you know, when I go back to Australia, I still you know, we always try to at least do one gig together. Mm-hmm. So yeah, relationships still, still are strong from those days. Sure. Yeah. yeah, sure. Well, I wanted to shift into talking about some of your recordings here, uh, particularly the the People Pleaser. Uh, I guess we'll talk about the both of the releases, but uh, you described it in a, in a few other places with that first one that you recorded it kind of in the in a very short span of time in the weeks leading up to the birth of your daughter. Yeah. Um, and, and you were just kind of like pulling material and samples that you had, I don't know, on a hard drive or something like that. Yeah. Um, but I, I was curious if, you know, if you could describe maybe the material and samples that you were drawing from that original one, maybe compared to your new one and maybe what your working methodology was for this new uh, one that just came out, People Please Part 2. Yeah, I mean, the, the thing, um, uh, I, I sort of just wanted to do something where like anything anything could be possible. Like I wouldn't sort of set any limits on what I could and couldn't use. So, um, you know, anything on the computer and that meant sort of depending on quality of recording or whatever, a lot of the stuff's really, really rough. It's not even mixed. Um, you know, I wanted to keep it really kind of rough and, and kind of brutal in the, in the, in the way it was all put together. And uh, and basically the idea is that it's kind of like it's very sort of personal like Sonic Diary where there's just all these snippets of stuff that makes sense to me and stuff that's kind of touched me. There's little bits from films. There's mm-hmm. field recordings of places that I've been. There's, you know, all kinds of different sort of personal things in there um, mixed with the idea of it kind of being like a, a mixtape, like kind of from – yeah, kind of this thing of actually playing along with music that exists or music that I really like, um, playing along with it, re-recording over it, um, and then adding more and more and more bits and pieces. And a, a very sort of, yeah, there's a lot of like, a lot of um, different influences in there. But the the idea was that it wasn't, is by no means purist in any kind of sense. It's, right. it's sort of like whatever whatever felt good. It, it it made it to the record. Did did you crank out this latest one in a similar way? I mean, in a very condensed period oh, yeah. of time as well. 
Yeah, it's just some of the stuff I'd sort of had on my computer for a bit, which would, you know, sort of half finished. And then it just became apparent that it was, yeah, it was kind of time to do another one. I'd always thought that there'd maybe be a couple of them. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, I like I like it when you can work really, really quick, when things are just sort of, super, you know, really spontaneous and you can kind of just put it together and sounds good and you're not, I'm not searching for something kind of perfect or anything. It's just keeping it as rough as possible. Yeah. Well, you- but it's also kind of like a... Um, Sort of like a sonic diary, as I said before, like a lot of the stuff that's on this last record would have been stuff that I've kind of listened to over the last year and a half or whatever. It's definitely stuff that's present and kind of fresh. Sure, sure. Yeah. Well, you, you said that you, you typically don't like to set boundaries or parameters, but I have to ask, I mean, you know, you being a drummer, um, do you ever lift drum breaks or drum loops or are those strictly yours? Um, no I mean there's just I guess I can sometimes try and play in a certain style like like a certain artist or whatever Mm -hmm. but um, no I try not to lift I try not to lift I mean I don't mind stealing like from the you know in the people pleaser stuff there is sort of entire songs kind of ripped and and reworked a little bit so um but on the drums, I don't know. I try. I, I just feel too fake when I'm doing it, so See, I try not so, to do that. So you are saying there are some lines to be drawn. I, that's what I was wondering. As a drummer, it's like yeah. you want to own those drum breaks, right? <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, that's you know, it's a funny thing. That's what to- Tony Williams said that to me. I like, had two lessons with him, and he was he said uh, he, he was sort of like beg, borrow, and steal. But when you get something from someone else he was talking about Roy Haynes and he said he loved Roy Haynes so much that he'd practice these kind of licks and then he'd just try and find like one thing in the lick of Roy Haynes that was a little bit his own and then he'd kind of hone in on that and and make that the thing you know so so it's sort of like yeah which made sense as a way you you use this stuff as a starting point and hopefully it becomes more and more personal as as time goes on well in this set, we'll play uh, a piece from both of the People Pleaser releases. I'll start with this one here from People Pleaser Part 2. This is Kaleidoscope Red, Kaleidoscope Blue.
Well, in that last block of music, uh, I played the title track from your Nishna uh, solo album from a couple years ago now, right? I think, or maybe last year. Um, and in, in the wake of that release, you had formed this fairly large group ensemble, just called Ensemble Nishna, uh, to perform what I would describe as kind of an experimental hybrid form of gamelan music. It's certainly by no means like purist uh, in any way. Um, but that seems like a pretty ambitious undertaking to you're essentially conducting like what is what is it maybe an eight nine piece group i mean how did how did all that come together because i'm thinking it's hard enough just to get like a three people together to form a band <laughs> now you're coordinating this huge ensemble so give me a little bit of background on that i'm curious about it mm. um yeah i mean i wanted to i wanted to do this group for a long time actually which was a kind of like um, a mixture between using gamelan as sort of the the center point of the the music, but uh, using a lot of other percussion and drums as well. So uh, yeah, as you said, it's it's kind of very much influenced and informed by different Indonesian music, but uh, musics because there's a lot of a lot of different music over there, obviously. Um, but you know, we we don't by any means play Indonesian music as such. It's 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 more of a kind of contemporary percussion ensemble in a way, um, but with gamelan, of course, you've got the option of having the melodic element, which is harder to kind of map out unless you want to use marimbas and xylophones and stuff. And you know, no one no one wants to use that. <laughs> <laughs> I don't. No, I'm joking. But um, yeah, and then the idea of getting something kind of bigger, I guess, I just really was up for trying. Yeah, I mean, from an organizational point of view as well, we used to organize a festival here for a long time in Nantes where I live and I kind of like difficult projects, <laughs> you know, where it's it's hard work and it's I kind of like the challenge of of making it work. So there's definitely an element of that with um, Nisnar as well. That was, um, you know, how can I kind of make this happen? And uh, And I did have a sort of original lineup and we were set to do our first tour in March 2020. So, of course, COVID hit. You know, it all went to went to to you know to pieces. And um, so, I kind of changed. I simplified the lineup as well. It was a little bit of an all-star group. There were kind of different people from all over, and it was, in a way, it was sort of like that. You know, this doesn't work. This model anymore. Anyway, you know, I think it was much more important to try and work with people locally and and get things happening just in the easiest way possible mm -hmm. and uh since then unbelievably like you know the the musicians in the group they're kind of a mix between gamelon um enthusiasts and you know there's a couple of guys that have done a lot of a lot of work with gamelon and studied in indonesia and stuff there's contemporary percussionists there's more people from my background kind of improvised or experimental type stuff so it's pretty eclectic, but everyone in the group is is incredible and and really into the music. So, you know, amazingly, we've kind of managed to even do stuff throughout COVID and throughout you know get together and and rehearse and kind of do as much as possible. And now that things are kind of kicking off again, there's there's quite a few gigs coming up, which is which is great. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think it's also there's a social element to this group where, like in Indonesia, where 
it's not just about the music. It's about people getting together and spending time together and actually working on something together. And, um, and you know, the, you know, those of us in the group that have had some experience in Indonesia, we, we, that side of things is kind of important to the group as well. So the fact that everyone kind of stuck in there throughout, you know, this difficult period and, and is motivated and, you know, really into the music and making it happen. It's kind of, in a way, a nice kind of um, nod towards the way they do things over there as right. well. So, um, yeah, it's a really important project for me. It's it's not something, I don't know how to say, it's more, it's, it's not something... Um, I don't know. I just don't really care a bit anymore yeah. as well, which is really nice. It's just it's just a really nice experience to get together and play. And um, people like the music, but uh, if they don't, they don't, and that's that's fine with me as well. <laughs> the, it's sort of like the human experience of this project for me is as is as important as the artistic one. So right, right, especially given yeah, like you said, this past year having that connection and community is is important. Um, yeah, absolutely. You know, you know, as I look kind of through the body of work that you've created, I, I kind of view it through the lens of someone who is sort of a quote unquote student of the drum. Um, mm. Maybe to borrow, I think that's sampled in a DJ sh- uh, Shadow song, <laughs> if I remember correctly. Yeah. But um, I guess by that I mean, you know, you're you're kind of constantly pushing your music forward and drawing from all these different traditional musics, but you know, kind of putting your own unique stamp on them. Um, but, you know, it also seems like you've been through periods where you are very comfortable just turning your back on the drums altogether. So uh, maybe a very broad stroke question here, but how would you characterize your relationship to the drums, you know, your primary instrument, um, you know, in general over the years? Do you go through these phases with it as like, ugh, I'm done with this? Mm. Or- I have before. Yeah, I definitely have before. Like when I, when I, I sort of stopped playing the drums when I came to Europe in um, around 2003 and I was really just concentrating on a, on a kind of electroacoustic setup using percussion, but everything was amplified, heavily amplified with contact mics and stuff. And it was, I had to kind of have a break from the drums and get away from being like a good drummer somehow, you know, like sort of being like, you know, whatever, pretty good, pretty good. I don't mean that in a, pretentious way but just like I got to a certain level certain place with the drums where I wasn't surprising myself anymore and and it was hard to find new things so uh you know I've sort of forced myself away from it and um and did other stuff for a while so it has been necessary to kind of step back at different times but um there's another side to it which I just I just really love playing the drums and, and it's it's sort of like this thing where I just kind of do it every day. It's sort of like a part of staying fit or a little bit like mentally and physically where it's just something that I keep chipping away at and also you know, being lucky enough to be around people who are just sort of like really hard workers on their instruments and in you know that's inspired me a lot to be like it's never really – it's never finished. There's always a lot of other stuff to learn and work on. And, you know, people like, I don't know, Roscoe, Roscoe Mitchell or Tony Williams said the same thing. And, you know, a lot of people that have been really important to me, they they were like, yeah, you know, it's great what you're doing, but keep working. You know, it's like it's not – you don't kind of get anywhere. It's just like you keep sort of chipping away at it and 
and it's through working, continuing to work on different things that new ideas come and different ways of navigating the material that you're already working on. Yeah. So in that sense, I love the drums in in that you can keep kind of, there's endless possibilities of stuff to work on. Yeah. Did that sort of, is that why you, I should say why, but where you started looking for other inspiration, looking to things like gamelan music and other sort of traditional forms of music in Indonesia? Nah, it's always been there, to be honest. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I had a really, really eclectic um, and great, start to playing music in Melbourne you know Mm -hmm. I was sort of playing professionally since I was 17 and doing everything you know from like Jewish weddings to you know rock bands to jazz with singers to free jazz stuff so I was playing in a gamelan ensemble when I was in my you know late teens Mm -hmm. in Melbourne at university and I was studying you know I was playing in African bands so there was always that Oh, I was playing in a flamenco dance company. It was a, yeah, there's a lot of Melbourne's crazy good place to play music to come up playing music, you know. So, so like you, you kind of opportunities. You had your hands in all sorts of things. So and that's remarkable. Yeah, that I was like a, like a working musician who is you know it's that it could be like you know just doing a whole bunch of different stuff and and playing with really good musicians that were like, even on some of the gigs that were less interesting, it was sort of always an opportunity to try and do something good. Yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah, those stuff that I am still working on, you know, a lot of it's been around for a long time, actually. Mm-hmm. You know, within the liner notes of your solo release, sticks, stones and breaking bones, you, you included, uh, in the kind of the tray, this, extensive shout outs list which yes. i think which i think is fun and uh you know different musicians artists even types of music who i'm assuming you know you admire or drew inspiration from and then you've kind of fleshed that out on your website where you you have this section that says those who help and i was yeah. wondering you know like looking back on this past year and a half of lockdown and, and limited performances were there particular artists on that list or maybe new artists uh, that you would include that you found to be helpful. I'll use that at air quotes mm. in whatever way. Yeah, there's so many. You know, I'm I'm really like I'm I'm like total. I'm like uh, in love with music. You know, I always have been like total nerd. You know, so when I'm when I love someone's music, I just get completely into it and need to know everything about them and get all their records and try and understand, you know, why or how they managed to do that music. And, um, yeah, so, I mean, those, you know, without sort of sounding dramatic dramatic or whatever, certain people on that list, like, yeah, they've just helped enormously, like, get, get me through life, you know, mm-hmm. which can be shitty sometimes, you know, and, and it's sort of like, thank God there's music to be able to actually – you know, music and the and the way some of these people worked and how they, you know, how they lived their life through music has always been massive influence on me and how the way I want to live and the type of thing I'd like to do with my music. So, you know, this last sort of period, I, re- I got really into Steve Lacey, the saxophonist, um, who I've always liked but didn't know that much about. So I kind of got got really into his stuff. And um, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of a lot of different people. What else I was listening to? 
Oh, so, so much stuff, you know. I guess uh, go sort of go through different periods of getting really obsessed with certain people or certain styles of music and um, and uh, and then move on to other things. So, But, you know, I guess that thing, those that help, it was sort of said as a bit, you know, a bit tongue-in-cheek, <laughs> cheek, but it's, it's true. You know, yeah. these people... These people that do help uh, our lives are like, for me, you know, really massive respects to certain. And some of these people have been lucky enough to work with, like Roscoe Mitchell, for example. I mean, he's just given me, you know, hours, weeks, months, years of, you know, food for thought, like really like challenging kind of mental <laughs> uh, areas to, to continue to work on, continue to coming back to and so much inspiration and and uh, encouragement and um so yeah they're really really important to me these these types of people yeah yeah i want to talk about some of your collaborations here we've, we've already talked you've had three records that have come out this year so far and maybe there's more i don't know we got a couple months <laughs> left you're cranking them out right but you, we talked about your people pleaser part two record but you also have uh, your record with james rushford that came out and then yes. your other collaboration with jean-luc is it Gionet? Guyane. Okay, yeah. yeah. So I was just curious, you know, if this past year, kind of continuing on <laughs> this last year, um, you know, if, if this allowed you time to finish up these projects, you know, being that you weren't out on the road and doing stuff, if this was just a really good productive period for you to, to wrap up some of these uh, collaborations. Yeah, it definitely was. I mean, I think for like most musicians it was. It was some of this stuff was kind of half finished or nearly finished. Like both the records with James and Jean-Luc were recorded before, like in before COVID in 2019, maybe with James even a bit earlier. And um, it was stuff that we were working on, but, it, you know, it wasn't sort of going, wasn't finished. And then all of a sudden, bang, you, you know, you're at home. There's no more gigs. Um, finally got a little bit of time to, kind of finish a lot of these things so a lot of different projects got finished but it's it's a bit crazy because now it's coinciding with you know you can't get any records pressed because everyone's like you know did 10 million albums in COVID and the majors are doing everything on vinyl now as well mm -hmm. so it's kind of paradoxical but so the, yeah, so I, you have three stuff got finished. Yeah, you had three records that came out now. Now it might be three years until you can get your next one. Wow, well, yeah. I mean, <laughs> you know, Nisna, Ensemble Nisna got got their record finished. Uh it's been done for a while. We we kind of turned that in in August or even before July and apparently it's not gonna be out until March next year or something. Yeah. So yeah, it's, it's kind of crazy it's, delays, yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, drag. I wanted to ask you just a quick question about uh, the Electric Rag uh, collaboration with Jean-Luc. Um, th was that all recorded live in, in the studio? Because there's just this like kind of raw rawness and intensity. Like it felt like it was just kind of building off of one another. So um, just was curious to know about that. And, you know, you had worked with him in the Ames room. And I was just wondering if that's yep. also maybe an ongoing thing or is that on hiatus it's just with you two working together now like that um the Ames room yeah i mean we clayton the bass player moved back to australia so basically oh, okay. that was the the thing that kind of put that on hold unfortunately but i mean he'll be hopefully back over here soon so we're we definitely want to play some more and john luke and i have a long relationship even before the Ames room in different projects and we've done stuff with Jerome Nortanger as well 
Um, we've done we've done heaps of different projects together. So uh, with John Luke, it was kind of like yeah, we wanted to do something continuing somewhat in the in the line of Dame's room, but um, but we didn't want to do the same thing as what we'd do with with that band without Clayton. So he um, concentrated more on the organ, electronic organs, electric organs. Sorry. And I'm playing a really heavily amplified drum kit with kind of a lot of lot of close mics and contact mics and distortion. So uh, yeah, it actually was recorded live. I mean, live. There's not. There's hardly any editing. It's sort of just. Um, it was basically recorded in my little home studio, and we spent a, a day or two on it. And uh, yeah, it's a it's a great. We're both really happy with the the sound. It's mm-hmm. kind of really gnarly and in your face and right yeah it's it's uh it it all it all came together pretty pretty nice yeah yeah it rages and uh well we'll let people check it out we'll we'll play something here to start off this next block of music from electric rag this is the track called bounce
on your website, uh, there is a list of all the past concerts that you've played. But I was interested in finding out about these solo shows that you do for one person at a time. <laughs> I mean, was it one person that would come and watch and that was it? Or did you have multiple people like 15 minutes cycle through? Like what, what did those look like? It just seems like an interesting concept. Yeah. Um, I don't think I'm the first one to have done that. I mean, I'm sure it's been done before, but we, um, I just started thinking about different ways to present the music, you know, like that's, we, we often ask that question in the, the festival we organized where it would, you know, we'd always be presenting really extreme experimental music. But when it came to the, the shows, it was, it was kind of often really hard to get away from this classic kind of frontal setup, you know, where the, the, the person playing sort of in front of the audience and the speakers are there and you play and they clap and, you know, it, was, it's, it seemed sometimes kind of absurd to, to be dealing with such extreme uh, approaches to sound but then present the music in, in this very kind of classic way. So it came out of thinking about, yeah, how to kind of present the music in, in a different context which would, you know, um, uh, provoke a different way of listening and a different way of playing as well. So, uh, yeah, this idea of, of playing to one person at a time, basically I've done it in a, in a bunch of different settings. Usually it's in the, you know, kind of different, strange, you know, a little bit different kind of settings where once I did it on a little boat, uh, I've done it kind of upstairs in this tower in this kind of building in Nantes where I live and people would have to walk all the way up to the top and then I was there and yeah and the idea is that there's just it's there's one person who comes at a time kind of sit in a comfy chair or whatever right in front of me really kind of close and I play for them and uh and obviously the experience for them is completely different to what it would be in a more normal kind of gig and for me it's completely different often it's pretty kind of intimidating it's it's really really intimate mm -hmm. So uh, I always feel I play differently. I can't not be influenced by that kind of setting. So it's it's interesting in that it brings out different things. And, um, yeah, and then throughout the day, I've often done it where throughout the day, you know, many people kind of come and go. So you might I might only play for like 5 to 15 minutes or whatever, and then there's a whole string of other people that come. But I try to be really kind of it's, – it's, it's really just one person at a time, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, it's a no I haven't done it for a while, but it's it's a really nice thing to do. Yeah, you you brought up kind of the the live music experience and sometimes like these certain expectations given the context that you're playing in. You know, for for you, what is like a good scenario to be playing live music in? What do you feel? I mean, because there's the kind of the one end of like the concert hall stuffiness clap when it's done yeah. or more this sort of like you mentioned like DIY kind of the, yeah. the improv series that you're talking about for you. What, what feels the best when you're playing? It's really complex actually. Cause it's, it's I, I sort of like appreciate both. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm not, I, I live in Europe for 20 years, but there's, you know, the, this kind of stuffy concert hall stuff, like doesn't exist in Australia really, you know, like where I kind of grew up playing music or the States so much, you know, it's yeah. not played in the States. It's not, it's way more relaxed and 
DIY basically. There's there's not much money because there's not much funding, so it kind of changes everything, you know. Mm-hmm. So on one hand, in you know in Europe, it's great to be able to get paid properly and and uh, and play in these kind of venues where you've you've always got really nice gear and great kit and you're looked after and you know. But it's kind of boring sometimes, you know. <laughs> Whereas that that more kind of DIY settings where it's a bit more, I don't know, a bit more down to earth. It's not always so comfortable. Maybe, maybe you know, I don't believe in that kind of bleeding artist story. But maybe when it's a bit tougher, you play differently too. There's something you have a different relationship with the music. So uh, to be honest, I, I appreciate both settings. I wouldn't want to do only one without the other. Right, but I think if you you know when if you give me a choice, I'd probably prefer a a scummy <laughs> scummy bar any day right. or a squad or right. you know it's just you just I don't know you just feel like that's where I'm playing to the same type of people yeah as me you know that's where I want to go and hear music so but you know within that there's so many things it depends on the music too some music you really need a dedicated listening audience you know for the music to be kind of played properly whereas other settings I, I like it when it's a bit more kind of raucous and yeah and i like that thing of playing to people that don't know my music you know that are like especially playing solo maybe where they're like you know what the hell is this person going to do with firstly why is he by himself like where are the other you know and uh and that thing of trying to kind of maybe um win over the crowd, you know, like a bit of old school show business kind of <laughs> vibe, which I quite appreciate yeah. in this really stuffy, you know, sometimes overly kind of arty, you know, experimental music world. I, I'm more from a kind of like, yeah, DIY background. So it's it's where I'm more comfortable for sure. Yeah, it is interesting because, I mean, I think of a lot of that improvised music if people saw it <laughs> in the proper set. I mean... It is much more punk rock than, I mean, it, it seems like it's been over intellectualized yeah. in a lot of ways. Yeah, I don't mind that. I don't mind that element. I think it, we worked on that a lot with the the festival. It was really like, how do we get the youngins in here? You know, because it's like I've had that experience like all over the world. You know, playing to, you rock up to some city. You know, the the organizers like gung ho about kind of defending this type of music, but in the process of doing that, it's completely alienating everyone around him, you know, by being or her being around like this kind of whole thing of like what we're doing is experimental and it's this and it's that. And, you know, in the meantime, everyone else is sort of yawning and being like, yeah, it sounds great. Not coming to your gigs, you know. <laughs> and uh, so that kind of whole problematic that I've seen all over um, was, you know, we worked on that a lot with the festival. How do, how do we get people through the door and uh, and get them to listen to you know Aaron Dillaway or whatever like what how do you what do you say about Aaron Dillaway you don't communicate about it being like you know he's at the forefront of experiment like I don't know it has to be different ways of communicating about the music because once you get people through the door to see someone like Aaron they're probably going to be blown away whether they like noise or not you know right. so but getting him through the door is the hardest sort of thing mm-hmm. so. You know, I think that whole thing of how you present the music and how you are with the audience as well, you know, if you can be really kind of standoffish or whatever. I'm, I'm a bit better at that when I was younger. I think when I was younger, I was probably really un- just uncomfortable. So I wasn't comfortable in that setting. I wasn't comfortable being on stage. So maybe people 
felt that and it kind of comes off a bit pretentious or something. Whereas now, I don't know, I just, I'm conscious of trying to create a setting where people who maybe don't know this music are not going to feel intimidated or kind of turned off by the context, which can sometimes be a little bit too stuffy, you know? Yeah. I think anyone that's organized shows is presented with this type of problem really, really quickly. And, uh, and it's a problem. It's a problem. I hate it when people say, look, you know, I like your music, but I just hate going to that place, <laughs> uh, you know, where you play. And it, it, for me, it's such a bummer. It's, yeah. it's like, yeah. damn, I mean, that, that's the only place I can get a gig. But, you know, you understand why no, there's no young people, there's no women, there's no, you know what I mean? It's like sort of middle-aged white dudes sitting around listening to really difficult music. I mean... I'm sure you've come across that problem, oh, yeah. David. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yes. Yeah. Oh, yes. <laughs> we all have, yeah. Yeah. Well, you got a bunch of live shows coming up here, actually, in the next few months. You, you, I bl- you alluded to, I believe, the Ensemble Nishina and some solo yep. stuff, including a two-day residency I see at uh, Cafe Auto. Um, yeah. Can, can you share some of the details about that residency and, and who's on the bill with you for that show or for those yeah, couple of shows? Two duos. One, the first night's with Mark Fell. And the second night's with John Leguiene. So, uh, yeah, I'm really looking forward to that. It's kind of just an opportunity to present the projects that I'm working on at the moment. Uh, I haven't played with Mark for a long time, since before COVID. And uh, Jean-Luc, we haven't really played either. We've got some stuff coming up in with that gig. And also in, in January, we're trying to tour. But, uh, as you know, as it has everywhere, everything's just been a mess, you know, in terms of, yeah, playing live and getting together with people and all the different situation in different countries as well. I feel like we've had it relatively easy in France in that, you know, the 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 lockdown wasn't too brutal. Um, yeah, I don't want I don't want to talk about COVID, but I, I got to say, you know, compared to colleagues in other countries, I, I feel kind of. You know, I feel grateful that we, we, we seem to have come off not too bad compared to some of my friends in other places. I'm thinking about Mark in the UK. Mm-hmm. You know, that combined with Brexit, it's, it's just been really, really tough on, on musicians. So. Yeah, yeah. Will this be your first time playing in front of a live audience then, this next round of shows? Or were you able to do some of that last summer and stuff? Were they doing outdoor yeah, stuff? Yeah, no. We, I, I was lucky. With, yeah, we, we had a, uh, you know, in France, culture, like music and stuff, people, people really tried to find a way to keep it going in, a, in safe ways, you know, in safe environments. But, but it was important that this stuff didn't just completely stop, you know. Mm-hmm. And, you know, from our point of view, it was like, well, if, you know, if we're allowed to, go to the supermarket and be around 300 other people or, you know, if Amazon's not stopping their activity, like maybe some of the other stuff shouldn't either, you know. Right. It, it was it was very much this a kind of um, reaction against this purely sort of like, well, if it's making money, it keeps going. If it's not making money, it doesn't keep going. So, you know, it was important for people, musicians and, and people – um, concerned with those activities to kind of try and keep a minimum of stuff happening. So yeah, I did. I was lucky enough to do some gigs last summer, and then it all kind of closed down again. Obviously, in um, in October, up until yeah, up until 
April, I think. Mm. And then from kind of April of this year onwards, there's been little bits and pieces weird and stupid, you know, like mm. traveling really far to play to like 20 people or whatever. And, um, but, you know, grateful to be able to do it. And, um, and then since kind of summer this year, again, people, you know, more and more people are vaccinated and things are, are kind of up and running on some level. We're all worried. Everyone's worried everywhere, but we're, you know, there's significantly lower numbers of people coming to shows um, even when it's, you know, when it's totally sort of organised and safe. You know, you have to wear masks at shows. You have yeah. to show that you've been vaccinated and all of that. But uh, even with all of that stuff, there's, you know, way less people going out. So, you know, it's not it's not great kind of times ahead, I would, I would say, for a musician, like a lot of other yeah. people in different areas of work as well. So just got to kind of hang in there and... Soldier, yeah. on, soldier on through this, yeah. Yeah, well, basically. Yeah, well, why don't we wrap up here before we head into this last bit of music? I just wanted to ask you, I mean, mentioned the, the live stuff there, but do you have any other collaborations and recordings? I know you said you've got some things that you've been working on outside of this. Anything that you can mention at this stage of it? Yeah, there's two things that are finished. Uh, one with Rudolf Eber, who's a Swiss noise artist. Um, that's a record coming out on Fragment Factory next year sometime. And um, there's the Ensemble Nisna record coming out on Black Truffle next year at some stage. And there's a, uh, another record with um, friends from a band called Raisin from Belgium. And um, that will, should be out soonish as well. And after that, um, I think I'm going to not record for a bit <laughs> like it, it, it was weird you know it's like that so much stuff kind of came out I sort of feel kind of like flooding everyone's inbox with like another record another record but it was that COVID thing where a lot of different stuff got finished around the same time and a lot of different stuff came out at the same time so um, yeah after these next two things next three things that are coming out I'm not sure uh, might might slow down a little bit. Yeah, <laughs> hopefully we'll be playing a lot more live. To be honest, yeah, that would be great. I have yeah. to ask. I mean, will there be another People Pleaser album? Yeah. It, it, it feels but, like there has to be at least three, so that you can yeah, call it so the true. People Pleaser trilogy. Like you have to have yeah. three. Well, I mean, I have two kids, but there's, there won't be a third one. <laughs> but there might be. There might be another People Pleaser. Yeah. So, so are they prompted? No, it's, it's, uh, sorry. I, I said are the, the the albums are prompted by the birth of a, a child. Is that part of it? Kinda. Well, Ellie, our second one's been around. She's been around for five years. But some one of the tracks was started around the time she was born. Yeah. It's also a time where you're just at home. You know, like the first one happened because we were waiting on our first daughter, Anna Lee, and I was at home for the kind of the two weeks, two three weeks before she was born, and it was like really nice, relaxing period just waiting for the baby and working mm -hmm. on the music and yeah it was great well let's we'll keep our fingers crossed for people pleaser trilogy to, to, to wrap yes. it up <laughs> yes well we'll head into this next block i thought we'd finish up with kind of your big band collaboration we'll call it with oren mark uh yourself and sam shalabi here from the album was it uglon Uglan, Uglan day. Uglan, yeah. Yeah. So I'll play something from that, maybe some other tracks, but Will, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. 
Thanks, David. Pleasure. Thanks for taking the time to, to actually listen to all that stuff. <laughs> right. I'm flattered. Thank you. Yeah. Well, here's Ooglon Day 1, an excerpt from that one.
Sécurise. Plus zéro. Et la météo, toujours pas de change. Ce soir, la pause d'appareil.
that's going to bring things to an end for this installment of the show. I'd like to thank Will once again for taking the time to speak with me this past week. If you'd like to check out the complete playlist for this show, you can go to over to our website at freeformfreakout.com. There are links that will bring you to each of the releases played and where you can purchase digital versions or physical copies if they're still available. I'd also encourage you to check out Will's website at www.will-guthrie.com where you'll also find more news and information about his music and links for videos and for ordering some of his recordings and about some of his upcoming tour dates. If you have any questions or comments, you can always get in touch with me at fffreakout at hotmail.com. I'll be back again in a couple of weeks with another new episode. Until then, thanks so much for listening. <laughs>